0: An insider's take now on how Mr. Trump actually won. This
1: is how politics is waged this day. These are the meme wars in action. And the president has the most powerful platform for propaganda.
0: Facebook has come under fire for its role in last year's election. So is this really about marketing? Is that what political campaigns are about these days? Welcome back to For What It's Worth. I'm Tara McGowan. And folks, this week was a historic one. Bernie Sanders has officially suspended his campaign for president, and the Democratic Party now has their presumptive nominee in Vice President Joe Biden. But that doesn't mean that Bernie and the incredible movement he and his campaigns have built over the years are going anywhere. Bernie Sanders made unparalleled strides in online campaigning, building a community of committed followers, supporters, fans, and challenging the Democratic Party as we know it to exist today. He's inspired candidates to embrace more progressive values and policies, and he's revolutionized how a campaign can build a movement online and off. So how was this coalition built? And where does it go from here and into November? Here to talk about all of this with me is my dear friend, Arun Chathri run is a political operative and filmmaker who's been at the edge of innovation in politics since the internet became a thing that started to change our politics and has operated at the front lines of our party and history. When President Barack Obama was elected, he was asked to become the first official White House videographer after working on President Obama's first campaign. He also served as creative director for Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign, among many, many other things, so, Arun, thank you for joining me on the pod.
1: Totally, totally. And I, and I think uh, in many ways it's really appropriate that we talk about this because you did mention that a lot of the work I've done has been at the forefront of the Democratic Party. But like Bernie Sanders, I have never formally been a member of that party. So I think I am both a messenger and good audience to see how things are going to progress before we get to the election in 2020.
0: Yeah, and you've worked with a number of different types of candidates from parties. So um, it's this is very relevant. First, obviously, you can't start a conversation today without addressing the moment we're in as a country and a world. Uh, Where are you uh, social distancing right now?
1: I'm in Houston, Texas uh, with my family, but we're actually preparing to make a big move to Europe that's been in the work for a long time, but happens to be springing on us in the middle of a pandemic. So we'll be going on an incredible masked journey in just a couple of days.
0: Can't decide if that is that sounds wonderful or horrifying. (laughs) What is bringing you to Europe from Texas?
1: Uh, Well, I've been working a lot in European politics because one of the hardest things, I think, as an American generally is discovering that you aren't the center of the universe, uh, and just like this pandemic uh, spread from other places to America, uh, I specifically think that the far right nativist contagion that sometimes I refer to as reverse 1848 that we've seen since Brexit sort of flooding across the world doesn't originate in the US. It actually originates in uh, in two places, uh, which is... And and where those two places come together, this kind of West and East style authoritarianism is Europe, and that is the main ground. And so that's where the contagion should be fought. And so I am moving with my family to Berlin to help work uh, to strengthen the center left against the far right. And so far, we've been very successful.
0: Well, we are going to be sad to lose you um, here in these fights, but I think that's really important. And I'm glad to know that you'll be out there doing that. I want to dig into this. And so interesting that you started by saying that, like uh, Bernie Sanders, you also haven't uh, identified fully with the Democratic Party. Let's go back a ways at this stage to the historic presidential primary in 2008. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing then.
1: It was an amazing experience being plucked from teaching at film school into, you know, being basically embedded with President Obama as he campaigned and being his personal videographer and help leading a team uh, that captured things on the road and got them up on the internet, much as you were doing in 2012. And I, I think what was so exciting about that was it was just, is this stuff possible? You know, when I think about the demands that go on a live stream now, even like the sort of technical sophistication that people are going to demand from this podcast. Us just doing a thing was enough to have huge hugs and high fives afterwards. You know, like President Obama couldn't make it to a church in Atlanta because the plane was grounded. So we figured out a way to have him live stream just to that church. You know, I remember like he was like, can we really do this? And I was like, I think we can. And we did it. And he was like, you're my guys, you know, like he was so excited about it. YouTube had just been invented. Um, Twitter was a very hard sell on the campaign. They didn't want to do it. What's the point of this thing? You know, it was very, very much the beginning. But it was an exciting time. And, you know, it was a campaign that had an attitude of let's hire people and see what happens. And so the video team was actually hired by Axelrod and Pluff, the two Davids, um, without fully knowing what it would do, but just knowing that they wanted it. And that actually is a quality that the Bernie uh, 2016 campaign actually very much had also. It was putting together sort of different units to do things that everyone knew they wanted to do rather than a a huge, cohesive master plan.
0: Um, Some of the conversations I've had over the years in trying to break down for people who maybe don't pay close attention to sort of the inner workings or under the hood of campaigns or anything, where and how innovation happens, it's always born out of necessity, but there has to be sort of cultural permission for that. You were there for a long period of time during the president's administration. And then take us to um, 2015 um, and how you went from working in President Obama's administration to uh, deciding to work for Senator Bernie Sanders as he uh, plotted out a run for the nomination.
1: Totally. Number one in the way, way back machine, I'd always been a very huge uh, Bernie Sanders fan. So when I heard he might be running for president, I was extremely excited Uh, I had actually written his staff a bunch of letters, I think in 1991, 1992, we'll have to look at this up. But when I was doing a summer program at Georgetown, where I was uh, writing this paper about Cuba, and like, you know, he was the only person in Congress who was sort of talking sensibly about this issue. Now, of course, a very mainstream position about ending the embargo. So for me, that was incredibly exciting. But the journey there was, was a little more meandering. It was sort of A decision I made after leaving the White House was I had done the campaign thing, the being inside the campaign thing. I had done the um, governing thing. And the third leg of the stool of sort of, you know, being the consummate propaganda filmmaker is then working in ads and making the negative stuff, the positive stuff, stuff for TV, stuff for the Internet, little bits that fit here and there. Just all of that, all of those objects. And so... Uh, There was no better time to do that than 2012 for me. So I joined uh, RevUp then because all of a sudden on my trips with the president, I would start getting left places because he was going to do political events because 2012 was standing up. And I remember I was watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, with some Air Force guys on Air Force One alone while they were at a fundraiser for like four or five hours, you know, eating salt and vinegar potato chips, which were the Air Force One potato chip of choice. Uh, And I was like, you know what? I might not really be serving my country or the best interests of like the people of America right now. Uh, maybe I should figure something else out. And I will also say, I have a very, very, and I think this may become important later. So we'll have this quote on your pad- podcast, deep antipathy for Mitt Romney, who I regard as one of the worst actors in the Republican field. And in fact, not one of the moderate, nice, good ones that he's being painted. Now I think he's particularly insidious. And so, uh, I was really happy to like drop Obama's schedule and pick up Romney's schedule and watch Republican debates and just see him and keep after him and enjoy every sweaty news conference he had at 10 p.m. because he doesn't drink caffeine. And it was just a good time. Uh, And then after that was over, really got into advocacy work, really like, you know, whether it was working with MoveOn or Ultraviolet or actually a number of abortion rights organizations. And the one thing I didn't think I would do again was a big presidential campaign. But like I said, there was the little kid in me, you know, punk rocker run 1991, who was like, whoa, Bernie Sanders. And so, you know, uh, we started asking around the office, like, who knows people on Bernie's team? Who knows people on Bernie's team? Um, People like me, and I don't know if you remember, we actually had a conversation about this, um, had been saying since 2014, that we believe Hillary Clinton was uniquely unsuited to be the presidential nominee, would have a uniquely hard time getting there. And so when there were rumors that that Bernie would run, we immediately just started reaching out to his people uh, in Vermont. And it was just a really good match. You know, I think on the day he heard that we were working and he was coming over to the office to, to check us out was the day he was deciding whether or not they would kind of use the political revolution as things on there. And he was like, you guys, you guys think the political revolution's good, right? You know, we were like, yes. We're like, it's very much on brand for us. So, you know, we're really down. Uh, and then as I recall, we failed to figure out how to get the internet on a monitor to show him <laughs> something, which is what happens, as you'll know, uh, running a business now. Anytime you try to show tech off to someone,
0: one thing that I often, um, I often talk about and draw comparisons to um, when I try to explain to people. Who don't understand social media or the internet especially in a political context um is you know you're when it's a candidate i hate to be crass and sound this way but you're you're selling you're marketing a product right and so something i have reflected on a bunch is you know what an amazing product we had in barack obama just a totally. unbelievably authentic genuine kind compassionate smart intelligent funny person uh, with a beautiful, brilliant family. I mean, and so you often wonder, was it us?
1: Oh, there is no question. Both of the candidates that I have worked for that I have in myself, and I hope others will step forward and say the same thing, benefited infinitely more from the candidates who I was able to work for than they did from me. I was happy. Everybody can
0: sort of see and nod their head about President Obama, but then you have Bernie Sanders, who is an <laughs> yeah. old curmudgeon of a man, but who has been consistently fighting with the same language for the same ideals and values and policy changes forever, and, and yet does not look the part of the type of candidate that you can sell and build a movement around at totally. face value. But Totally you are able to, and you were able to, and be a part of that team. So talk a little bit about that. Cause I often bring this up as like, it's not about how attractive you are or how charismatic you are. It's about how authentic
1: you are. And about if your team can sort of take that and make it into process. You know what I mean? There is no one campaign. This is part of the problem. and I think we'll probably get a chance to talk about the primaries, you know, uh, in 2020 coming up, but there's too much sort of, everyone doing the same thing for the same purpose. And and it's not really clear why. So if you look at Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders, you actually see, uh, despite the differences of ideology, like very similar coalitions of people coming together around them, despite very different, uh, beliefs on things. And the answer to why is that they're both harnessed the correct, they understood and harnessed the narrative. So Barack Obama's narrative is is a transformation over time. It's, you know, the classic thing. It's, it's someone who was born in a very rootless, uh, unfamiliar, familiar situation, who through striving and hard work and grit and determination has not just achieved success because who cares? That's not the emotional thing that makes the movie work has actually achieved like the perfect sort of family life and admiration in the community that we all want. That's the Barack Obama story. The Bernie Sanders story is someone who has been incapable of changing since he was invented in, you know, a tank in Burlington, Vermont in like 1890 or whatever the actual origin story of him is. Right. (laughs) Uh, And like I'm joking around, but it's funny because like um, sort of young, cute Barack Obama or Barack Obama horsing around with kids, you know, would become something we would use in ads. For instance, the ad team would tell you, you know, uh, just put a picture of him with the kids. You're like, this isn't about the kids. This is about like veterans care. Like they're like, it doesn't matter. Just put an ad with the kids in because they could look at the numbers and be like, that's when we get more donations. It's just ads with the kids, ads with the kids. Um, with Bernie Sanders, it's, you get, it's the, the consistency over time gives you a sort of different clay uh, to play with, but it is just as real. It's a person who's incapable of change. It's a person who you can trust. Uh, and it's a person who uniquely fits into the internet, not in the same way Barack Obama does, with having like a genuine, authentic presence in front of the camera, but actually by having a genuine presence in the archive of the internet. You know, Bernie Sanders, the digital phenomenon, did not start in 2015 or 2016. It started in the 2000s. You know, he's always has had one of the biggest Facebook pages on um of anyone in the Senate. And the answer to why is him. I remember Kenneth Pennington, who was the digital director in 2016, telling me a funny story when he was like, you're running for president now, so we're gonna have to hire people and we're rewriting the Facebook posts. And he was like, Kenneth, did it ever occur to you for one second that this is something I actually enjoy doing? And so the aesthetics, again, what do you do with the aesthetics of someone who's a curmudgeon, who has heavy policy, heavy, po- heavy politics, is you follow his lead. You know, I give him a script or something, it's two minutes long. He would hand it back with changes that made it eight minutes long. And you'd be like, hey, this is kind of long for the internet. He'd be like, do it. And he'd be right. We would make graphics with way more words than you thought would make sense for a graphic. And they would outperform the more simple ones because he knew what his audience wanted Now, when you do this as a creative director for like a campaign, though, you do leave things on the table. Politics is scarcity. If you're doing one thing, you're not doing another. And it's not like this is what people don't understand. If you could do everything, you just do it. You're not dumb. You know, yes, I would do everything and get all the votes and win. It's like you can't do everything. You have to make choices. So when you have Barack Obama, perfect family man, you do kind of soften some of these uh, harder edges that people do want in their president, the sort of toughness, the sort of whatever with Bernie Sanders, when you emphasize this man has never changed over time, when you make videos that, you know, morph over the decades, and the only thing that changes is slightly the hair position, you make this incredibly consistent thing that's powerful, but you also deny Bernie Sanders of his youth. And isn't it interesting that in 2016, and even persisting in 2020, people are like Bernie Sanders has a civil rights problem, you're like, you know, he's for instance, versus Joe Biden, who, you know, is beloved in the African-American community, who has a terrible civil rights record. We actually have a literal picture of Bernie Sanders chained to a black woman uh, protesting with, you know, putting his body on the line uh, in the 60s, but it doesn't stick. And the reason it doesn't stick is because that young guy's not Bernie Sanders. I know who Bernie Sanders is, and he's always been this old. Even if it was 1890, he was this old. Rationally, we know this is not true, but irrationally, which is where, you know, as we know, all politics festers, we believe this. And so I think some of his struggle with some of this stuff is existential. Again, you can't do everything. You can't be the person who's been the same forever and also show your journey through time. You can't do both.
0: Right. It's always a trade off. It's always a trade off. And you you stick to the thing that works, that resonates the most with the most people. And that's how you build the movement. So something else that I always found really impressive and fascinating about the Bernie campaigns, as well as just what he continued to do and innovate and build in between the 2016 and the 2020 elections, was the owned media that his team and he clearly must have had, because it seems like a lot of this was influenced by him. But talk a little bit about that. I believe like he started Bernie TV and other sort of ways of just communicating directly and authentically to his base, which we also know the president, President Trump does as well, in a different way. But, but I think that is how media works right now. It is about owned content streams and owned media. And um, I feel like the left has been at such a deficit to the right for so long on this. And yet I believe that, that Bernie's campaign really did approach this differently in a much more strategic way. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Uh, yes. Uh, And I will say Bernie Sanders is no stranger, actually, to to audiovisual technology. You know, as you talked about, you know, he made some audio documentaries for uh, Burlington Public Library Uh, and also um, to look at his videotapes of him marching around Burlington armed with a microphone and a camera in the 1980s is to sort of feel like the kind of fresh small camera documentary filmmakers of the late 90s. It actually like isn't. It isn't very different. I'll even say he is someone, Barack Obama, uh, one of the great things about working with Barack Obama is that when you're done shooting something, he's like, was that okay? And you're like, yes. And then he leaves and trusts you to go edit it. Bernie wants to hear, but he actually does know. And I remember once he, uh, you know, watched with the headphones on into a take he just done and he goes, guys, this sounds fabulous. Did you get a new microphone? And the answer was yes. We had just bought a spanking new Sennheiser uh, 416 microphone. Uh, and actually, him noticing that was one of, as a sound person. It was just it was a glorious time, but also in Bur- I think it's a lot of this comes from Burlington. It's a DIY town. You know, they have a huge that uh, he was very influential in the punk rock scene there, like starting a kids owned club that the city sponsored. That ethos ripples through him, and it gave other people permission to do that, to suggest that. And I think you just saw that go even farther in 2020, which I can't always speak the details of, but certainly these things were super obvious when you see like their podcast uh, that Brie hosted and, you know, a bunch of things that they were a- ahead of the curve on. But the one thing I do want to say, I think that one of the innovations, and I think it comes out of Obama 08, but definitely shifted enough that it's worth mentioning, is even people like me in 2008, we worried about, you know, some of the more creative stuff happening online. And as much as you could, you tried to be really disciplined uh, as communicators. And that certainly is one of the strengths of the Obama team was absolute message discipline. And so the idea of user-generated content became something that was scary and also felt like the opposite of what the campaign had been doing by bringing us on board. The campaign didn't hire political hacks. I hired real filmmakers. So, you know, we're in good hands, people. We don't need you. In 2016, I think we dropped some of our guard to that down. And when some of the things that are the most memorable Bernie Sanders videos are actually made by users, this became a kind of codified thing that sort of happened in 2008 in a different way. We had two video teams. We had the road team, which was my team. And we were just out there capturing all the stuff, putting it up, trying to get those authentic documentary moments. And then there was Kate Albright-Hannah's team, who are a long format team who would make like, you know, a 15 minute thing just on Michelle Obama or like really make this kind of crafted stuff. What developed on Bernie 2016 and I think was even more so on, on 2020 was that the campaign focused on the bubble and on getting all those things out there and then let the grassroots kind of make some more of those movement videos and some more of those things and actually really trust that of the 50 that you knew would get made, two would be wonderful and to count on it and not to sort of countermand it. And I think this was an incredible innovation. And in fact, in 2016, we opened a Vimeo channel where we would just put every speech that he was making, even if we didn't put it in the YouTube channels just so people would constantly have uh, high-def footage to play with and just left it out there as a thing for them to play with.
0: This is the difference between a movement and a campaign, right? Because a movement isn't about a candidate. It's about everybody being a part of it, feeling a part of something, feeling empowered. It it lives on beyond any one individual. And there really also is a tribal culture mentality around it because you you understand that other people that are a part of it, they share some value or some experience with you and suddenly you're kindred. And in politics, too often it becomes so prescriptive and so top down that they're trying to campaigns can often try to like emulate a movement. It's
1: why these calls for Bernie Sanders to hand over his email list are so sort of misguided. You're like, what? would you do with that? It's like a weapon that has DNA activation. But it also
0: comes down to like the day-to-day things that you just mentioned, which is open sourcing footage and looking at what your fiercest supporters are creating on their own out of their emotional connection to the candidate and the movement and then using that. That's where um, I have just been so blown away and impressed and by the movement online and how empowered it has clearly always been for Bernie Sanders. As you mentioned, it was kind of always there for Bernie, but it certainly grew exponentially with his campaigns. What are some of sort of the elements of that that are you know, I don't I don't even want to say challenging, but, you know, because it is really owned by the people who are a part of it and not the campaign, but a campaign still has to do certain things to win or get things done. How do you, you know, reconcile that?
1: Right. You have to balance those things together. And I think that we're all trying to figure things out. One of the reasons that movements are better than campaigns is that, just to start off this conversation is that like a campaign is just a thing that's of limited value. You know, a campaign, when you lose it, you're like, Oh, you know, we did the best we could. And we did all the right things. We just came up short, you know, while Republicans don't do that, they sort of, they don't play the game. They tilt the playing field and movements have the opportunity to tilt the playing field. And I think that's why they're so important. And, And when you sort of, when you watch it take off, that's what works. But I do think like every movement needs two aspects which is kind of like the grassroots and the conspiracy. And you have to have both. You have to be Mensheviks and you have to be Bolsheviks. Uh, And I think that naturally came together in 2016 in a very powerful way in which you had, you know, Rev Messaging, who was my team operating... You know, we went from kind of being mavericky people on the left of the Democratic Party to on the Bernie campaign, sort of being the old professional, sensible people who'd be like, whoa, 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 I don't know about that, which was sort of a fun thing to kind of be switched into being. Uh, And then I think you saw the new exciting thing um, being big organizing, distributed organizing, however you want to call it which then was very big. And these two things went together well because unlike previous digital efforts that really kind of limited who you were targeting at by using people and by using uh, you know what they're doing, you're able to make a lot more noise to a lot more people. If you could follow up that noise when someone's paying attention with some really nice content with ads that are targeted to them, uh, in their community, like, you know, intelligently, if you can really combine these two strands together, and very few campaigns have combined these two strands together in a real way. That being said, I think we're also sort of, you know, struggling with, the F, with, with, and I'm on one side of this argument with the kind of content versus field struggle, you know, people wanting to put all your chips in field, people want to put all chips in content, and struggling to sort of make those things match together. And I think that Bernie 2020 was starting to point at what that might be and the kind of transition from big organizing to relational organizing to kind of having these manageable chunks rather than these large things seems to be unbelievably uh, effective and smart. And I think when you can use, when you can have content match that, when you can actually make the content reflect some of those relational organizing lessons you're learning, I think that's going to be the new way forward.
0: I think about this all the time because campaigns, most campaigns have not actually figured this out. And so there is this this sort of reductive argument where it's like, yes, content is not organizing, but organizing can utilize content. And that's hard, but it's, you know, we can learn from the campaigns that have done it. And Bernie's campaign certainly seems to have started that.
1: The next step is, I think, really going to be hyper putting these things together in a really serious way, like actually putting out a call to come hang out to do some organizing on the actual radio. Let's say you're in rural California. Let's say you live outside Fresno and on the radio comes in. Hi, I'm Barbara. You know, I own Pines restaurant uh, on the edge of town. Uh y'all know I hate politics. I don't let anyone talk about politics in a restaurant. But you know what? Like I was at this meeting and I heard about this guy Bernie Sanders and like he made a lot of sense about healthcare and I hope you can come this Thursday. This this would be kind of the distributed organizing ethos but put in a targeted media environment. I think this is a north star that we should reach for.
0: Vice President Biden is the presumptive nominee. They frankly were behind a lot of the other campaigns just in terms of what they're digital communications and media programs looked like in the primary when it was crowded. And, you know, they're in this position now where, of course, we're also all dealing with a health crisis and and being being isolated in our homes, including the vice president. And the campaign is they need to innovate. They need to figure out ways to actually build a campaign against Donald Trump and for Vice President Biden in a very short period of time with limited Uh, resources and certainly limits on traditional tactics that they might rely on. And so I'm curious, knowing that Vice President Biden is not Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders is one of a kind, (laughs) and nobody can try to be Bernie Sanders who is not or, or any other candidate for that matter that they are not. What do you think is possible there and what can they learn or try to adopt to be able to ensure that we get Donald Trump out in November?
1: Number one, and this is going to seem obvious and maybe even reductive and maybe even annoying, but like they have to like treat the left wing of the party better because a lot of people in the left wing of the party aren't really in the party. You know, I'm raising my hand right now in, you know, in Houston. Um, and, And and that and we never felt that way on the Obama campaign. You know, I would say fairly outlandish lefty things. And like, that was cool. It just wasn't what we were doing right now. And the kind of way that especially the anti-war people were brought into the campaign or a crucial part of of Obama's, you know, movement uh, was out of just sort of respect, respect for us. And this happens in a lot of different ways. You're asking how did the Bernie movement grow so big? It's because he's the only candidate who reaches out to non-voters who doesn't say that they're stupid, who doesn't sort of try to shame them online uh, and offline. Uh, And I think that like, even if you don't expect to get that many, you know, hardcore non-voters or people flipping, when you're seen to be reaching out, people who are on the fence kind of dribble in a little more. And so I think having real voter outreach, uh, it's got nothing to do with Bernie and his supporters. It has to do with just having conversations with people who aren't used to having political conversations. And that just like speaking Spanish, (laughs) that isn't just for people who speak Spanish. It also signals to other people who are paying attention that you give a shit. And so that is super important uh, to do.
0: The thing that frustrates me the most about politics generally is when there are strategy meetings or conversations and there's no connection to the people we're trying to talk to, to represent, right? It gets lost and it becomes this sort of inside baseball tactical game that's forgetting the whole point. And and I'm not saying that about Vice President Biden's campaign whatsoever, I'm saying that writ large that that is the majority of the campaigns that I have been exposed to or experienced. I think that's the best advice for any campaign. If you're not listening to people and, and learning from them and then responding with ways to make their situations better, because everybody is struggling in different ways, then, then why do you deserve the job, right?
1: Everyone's a single issue voter about what matters to them when they walk into the booth. People aren't on teams. They don't have huge sort of laundry lists of issues that they care about. Everybody has one thing right then, which is why healthcare and education always polls so highly is what people care about because everybody knows somebody who's sick. Everyone knows somebody who's struggling to go to school. You do have to give credit to the Biden campaign, though, for like not being a campaign. Right, they were not going to campaign their way to the top. They were not going to have a better campaign than anyone. They could have spent a lot of money in a campaign and had to drop out. Uh, and as we're talking about before, you know, tilting the playing field versus playing the game. There's only so much a campaign can do. So I actually don't fault them for not having a campaign until now. But now they do have to figure it out and get going. But you know, in a way, they've done us a service by showing us what. It all means, and how building up a media narrative and how using all those things are just as important as anything else. Uh, But now it's time to get very serious. This is the tragedy of the 2020 primaries because you had a chance for all these different candidates who, you know, in many ways are very different, you know, running the gambit from Andrew Yang and Marianne Williamson all the way to Joe Biden. They should have all been going out and getting new voters. You know, having a big struggle, yeah, losing some of them, but expanding the party, and then you hand that to the nominee. That's the point of having a competitive primary. You expand the electorate and then hand that to the nominee. Uh, instead, what happened was, I, and I think a lot of it has to do with the sort of weird shitty rules about, like, who was going to get in the debates and why, you had candidates all running the exact same program, which was, how many times can I fire a shotgun into a small barrel full of likely Democratic voters? in order to get enough of them to stay in the game until the, quote unquote, magic happens. And when the magic happens, it's exciting. You know, if you were Joe Biden, when the magic happened, that was probably super exciting. You know, (laughs) but like, uh, but it's not a way to live your life, you know?
0: Right. And it's very different than what's required of you to win a general election. Very different. So unfortunately, we are running out of time, um, but I could talk to you for hours. It's been too long. Um, I'm very excited for the next time that I have you on. And we can talk about campaigns in Europe after hopefully those of us uh, stuck out here (laughs) can help save the ship (laughs) in the meantime. But Arun, thank you so much for taking the time. I hope that you will uh, come back on soon.
1: I would be happy to. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: That's all we have for this week. If you want to take a deeper dive into the state of digital politics, and if you're not already a subscriber to our weekly newsletter, also called For What It's Worth, you can sign up at anotheracronym.org forward slash FWIW.